Welcome to a special edition of Compas on the Beat. I am Fernando Ramirez. I cover Notre Dame football for the South Bend Tribune. With me, as always, my co-host, my tag team partner, Gilbert Manzano. Oh, he covers the Rams for the OC Red Shirley Daily News. What's up, bro? Fernando, I'm getting a double what's up, bro, this week. You know, I don't like to, you know, to be hit with that multiple times, but it is a special Compas on the Beat. It's story time with the Compas. Fernando, I told you about this. I was like, hey, we got we got a lot of Compas. We got a lot of homies, friends uh, that, that we know, and we want to get them on the show. So we decided to make an extra special Compass on the Beat episode. Story and time. I'll let you say the guest, the guest lineup, but it's a it's a pretty stacked lineup, I think. We got Hall of Fame boxer, one of the first female Hall of Fame boxers, Christy Martin. She talks about her new book that's coming out and uh, just about her life and just how so many twists and turns. And, and sometimes we don't see the dark times with athletes until stuff comes out so she talks a lot about that and then we got uh one of our our good compas kaylin jones uh he used to be with the ringer now he's with the history channel he has a podcast he's trying to compete with the compas don't worry it's a friendly competition they know no 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 boxing's gonna happen here with kaylin uh he talks to us about what he's doing and man he has some great stuff he's had uh he's done a, a podcast already on the dream team he's done one on uh um uh billy jean king uh it really a lot of great stuff that he's doing and then we got one of gilbert's uh co-workers he covers the angels jeff fletcher he's got a really cool book out it's about uh shohei otani showtime it's called and and it's definitely uh i mean it's definitely all about shohei and about what he's doing and pitching hitting i mean the guy can do it all so definitely three really good guests. It's 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 something new that we're trying to do with story time with the Gumpas. We'll be throwing it out here and there, like Gilbert said. They're all good friends, good storytellers, and and it's three different genres. So you're getting the life of an athlete. You're getting uh, the the change that uh, one of our good friends went through with a new job, and then you're getting uh, uh, the life of a of a Japanese superstar baseball player through the lens of. Uh, of uh of a, a writer so definitely a lot of really good stuff from all three of them gilbert and th- and like i said three different topics yeah we want to do more story time and catch up with, with our compas and, and it's a good time with these three because they're all promoting something new something exactly. new in their life and their career uh you know starting out with christy martin you know obviously she had a huge accomplishment uh going into the international boxing hall of fame you know the first class with female boxers in the hall of fame she went in with, with floyd mayweather roy jones jr Man, if, you, if you're if you're kind of like an older generation, you know Christian Martin was the the real deal in the '90s. She was on the undercards of Mike Tyson. She was promoted by Don King. So you want to listen to to this interview? But obviously, she's gone through a, a lot of adversity in her life. That's why she wrote the book. I have the book, and now my coworker Jeff Fletcher also wrote a book on Shohei Ohtani. I have that book too. Uh, and 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 Fletcher, you know, he is by far the best Angels beat reporter out there. He's been covering the team for like a decade. He's been through all the, the bad times, you know, some good times, but mostly bad times. But now it's a fascinating story with Shohei Atani, two-way superstar, pitcher, uh, baseball player. I think I have the – yeah, there goes the, the, the picture there. I'm fascinated with Shohei behind my, my head here if you're watching on, on the video YouTube channel. Uh, and then also we have Kalen Jones. Uh, he doesn't have a book, but his podcast feels like it's a book. Like you're learning yeah. so much. It's, it's a history lesson. And the thing you're going to enjoy about Kalen – uh, who's going second on the lineup is, uh, you know, these are really memorable uh, historic moments in, in sports. And they've been covered for decades. A lot of journalists have been doing stories on them, documentaries. But Kaylin's found a way with the History Channel to find something new, new nuggets on these memorable moments. And we kind of pick his brain, like, how do you do it? Like, you know, and, and it's not just the, the the countless research. Like, Kaylin's the host. He's the voice of it. And it's kind of interesting that, hey, somebody that we know, is a voice for the History Channel podcast. So uh, you get to hear Kalen's side, how he kind of gets the vocal cords ready. Uh, the, it, those are special for him now. Do you think um, he does what's up, bro, on his? No, right? He doesn't, nobody can hit that like well, I can. You, you know how it is. You have to have the, you got to keep these, you know, these vocal cords, exactly. you know, keep them, keep them ready to go because you need them, that they're part of, part of who you are, Fernando and Kalen. Uh, and then we can relate with Jeff because he's a beat reporter. He knows a grind that he's a perfect person to write about Shohei. Because he's there every single day. And obviously, like you mentioned, getting a point of view from an athlete who's been to the top and Christy Martin. Uh, again, I, they're, they're, they're very different. Maybe it's a little random, but the stories 
are, are, are great. And that's why we want to roll them out and uh, uh, one, two, three for this episode. Roll them out, roll them out. Uh, yeah, so definitely don't worry, guys. We still will have regular compas this week. Uh, we will still we, we have we have a great guest coming up for uh, in this week's compas uh, to preview the AFC East. And uh, and then we'll preview the a- NFC West, uh, the NFC East as well. But that one will be uh, your compas uh, breaking that down. But definitely, guys, thank you guys so much again for for listening. So let's start it off with Christy Martin. Like I said, Hall of Fame boxing legend. Let's see what Christy Martin has to tell uh, has to tell the compas about her journey. So now joining Compas on the Beat is a boxing legend. She is the first female Hall of Famer. She was inducted into the Hall of Fame with Floyd Mayweather and Roy Jones. Christy Martin, thank you so much for joining the Compas. How are you doing, and how does it feel to have Hall of Famer in front of your name? It's pretty awesome. First of all, you know, thank you guys for having me on today. Um, yeah, I mean, to get inducted into to the International Boxing Hall of Fame was, um, I don't even know if you could say that that was a dream come true because – women weren't allowed to be inducted into the hall of fame. So it's not even something that you really dream about because it's, it's not a possibility. You Is that correct, it. Christy? You're the, you're the first uh, female boxer into in the international boxing hall of fame. Well, you know, I went in with the first class of women. I, I don't know if I can take claim to be the first, <laughs> but I went in with the first class. So that was pretty awesome. What was the kind of your biggest takeaway from being around so many legends? Oh my goodness. You know, I was really lucky because I actually started going to the Hall of Fame back in 1996 as a guest. So I was around legends. I was around Willie Pitt, uh, Archie Moore, Emil Griffin, Carmen Basilio, Gene Fulmer. I mean, the list goes on and on, those guys. Those were legends. I mean, I'm very honored to be hanging out with, um, you know, my buddy James Tony and Roy Jones and those guys. And, and they're legends too, but they're legends to a different group of people, right? And so to yeah, so have the two comparisons to compare, like this year being inducted to the years when I was there back in the '90s, and just you know hang out with those guys. It was unbelievable. I I didn't say a word. I just listened. Aaron Pryor, you know Marvin Hagler, listen to their stories, and and I would ask them often, like how they train, what was their training routine. That that was true to me. Wow, I, I wish I could be there for those stories. I'm, I'm sure you heard in the '90s or 2000s from these legends because I, I grew up a boxing fan. Fernando did too, but Christy, you're also a legend now too. I'm sure it's taking you a while to kind of get used to that here in Hall of Fame. But uh, Christy, we have you on today to, to promote your new book, uh, "Fighting for Survival." Fred, my good friend Fred, you, you know Fred sent, sent me the book. I have it right here. Uh, I guess the first question on the book is, what made you do it? Well, I feel like. From waking up in the hospital after being shot and stabbed, left for dead, uh, that God left me here for a reason. And I feel like that reason is to to share my story, to talk about domestic violence so that more people become aware of, of what's going on. And that so many people think domestic violence is only about bruises, but it, it, it's so much more than that. It's it's the isolation. It's the uh, manipulation, the emotional abuse, um, financial abuse. There's so many different things that that really fall under the umbrella of domestic violence. And I just want to make more people aware of more things than just bruises. Christy, yes. uh, um, go ahead. Go, go ahead, ahead, Fernando. Uh, Christy, when when it says, obviously, in, in your book that uh, it talks about resurrection, do you feel like that night your life, like a part of you kind of died and a new a new person kind of was resurrected or, or, or can you talk about that, about that part? In some ways. And at sometimes I, I do feel exactly that. I'm like, you know what? He killed Christy Martin that night, but the truth is he didn't because Christy Martin, the fighter is still here and still fighting and still trying to survive. But the true me gets to, to come out and talk to people about sexuality, talk to people about domestic violence, talk to people about drug addiction, um, just in boxing. I mean, geez, so many people out there, as we talk about boxing, they automatically are, you know, no, we don't want, we're not interested. We don't want our kids doing this. And then I really break it down to them and explain how boxing gyms have saved so many lives and how it's a family in a boxing gym. And I know when I had my gym in Florida, I felt, many days that 
the only positive human contact that some of the kids that came in the gym got was from me. But then as time passed, I realized, man, I hope I gave them something, but really it was what they were giving me because it was what I lacked. I wasn't getting the positive, not just human contact, but the positive reinforcement, the positive life. And so we, I hope we balanced each other and I gave to them and they gave, I know they gave to me. Christy, that, I mean, and obviously you couldn't get away from it. He was your trainer and your husband as well. So can you, can you talk a little bit about, I mean, it, you, it's not like you could go to work and kind of escape from it because you were going with him and he was obviously your trainer as well. Just talk about that. Can you talk a little bit more about kind of that dark time in, in your life? It, it was so crazy because, um, he would he would wake me up sometimes in the middle of the night to tell me that I wasn't turning on my hooks right. Um, he would the moment that I did wake up of the day, you know, it would check my weight. He would weigh me during the day. He would weigh me at the gym, weigh me out of the gym, weigh me before I went to bed. Um, and I get it. As a fighter, we have to we have to stay on weight. We have to be aware of of our weight and things like. That. But that was just one of the the. Um, the situations that, that I was in with him, but it was always control. And then he would manipulate. He had me believing that the entire boxing community hated me, that the fighters, the managers, the promoters, that no one else would train me, that the fans were against me. Um, and I, I believed it. I mean, after a while at, at first you think everybody loves you. And then, then you're like, Oh, maybe he's right. So you kind of start thinking, well, you know, maybe he's right. And then by the time it was all said and done, I absolutely thought everybody, everybody in the world was against me, uh, but that he was the only person that that cared enough to, to help me. But that's what abusers do. They isolate you. They put you on that island and, and get you to think that they're your savior. Christy, that, that part about control, you know, it sounds like that's kind of a big part in, in the book because, you know, you were raised in West Virginia you know, there's certain ways in that part of the country. You have, you have to be a certain kind of style or I guess the, the way you live your life and you couldn't be who you were or, or, or who you are today. And then your trainer and your husband had control. Uh, you're trying to, you know, please a lot of people as, as a boxing star. Uh, and then, you know, you couldn't be who you are. You couldn't come out and, 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 and just be yourself. Is that kind of the big part of why you wrote the book too? for like, you know, you went through all these portions that people kind of go through in life and because just the way they were raised, but this is kind of the, the blueprint for how you could kind of be, come out and be yourself. I, I hope that's what people take away from the book. And, and, and also a big reason for the book was not to, to young people or whatever your age might be that are, are battling with their sexuality and, and their identity, but the parents and the friends of those people, when they do decide to come out, I mean, I, I want them to be supportive and I want them to understand it's better to have that, child or that friend still alive with you then you know they're in a relationship like i was in where i was gonna die either by jim's hand i was gonna overdose on drugs or i was you know maybe i was gonna be smart enough or not smart enough uh strong enough or weak enough to pull the trigger myself so i wasn't gonna live much longer no matter what i had to get out well, uh, Christy, I guess kind of, you know, again, we don't want to kind of harp on the, the whole night what happened with your, with your ex-husband, but I guess the days after the picking up, you know, the, the pieces, you know, getting your life together, how difficult was that, you know, being in the hospital and then, you know, and, and then, you know, the way you are today, you know, you're, you, like you mentioned, you're a fighter, you're strong or not, but those days that somebody might probably going through something similar are probably the toughest, I'm assuming, for the weeks, the months, even the years. Absolutely. It doesn't. You don't get better in a day. You don't get better in a week. You know, it takes a long time. I'm still, we're, we're 12 years later. And, and as I say, he doesn't live in my head rent free anymore, but he still knocks on the door every now and then. And, and it's, it's hard. It's hard. Um, people often will say, well, why didn't you just leave? Well, if it were that easy, trust and believe I would have done it. But I was my, my, as you mentioned, my personal and professional life were so intertwined and he had me convinced that no one else in boxing would would train me. No one else in boxing would promote me. All, all these things that I stayed. I stayed. And I took the – it wasn't physical a lot with him. It was just the mental and emotional. And I took that mental and emotional beat down on a daily basis. Sometimes those are the hardest ones to take is the, the mental um, more than the physical. But 
when when did you decide uh Chrissy to become an advocate for for this and when when did you kind of um when did you kind of uh, start wanting to do this and help other women or, or even men out who could be uh, going through this uh, kind of stuff? Immediately. Like I said, from the hospital bed, I knew that um, I, I was, I'm here for a reason. And, and I truly believe that it's to share my story and, and to make everybody more aware of domestic violence and that it is everywhere. It's not, you know, domestic violence doesn't, doesn't see money signs, doesn't see race, doesn't see religion. Um, it's, it's everywhere. And, and you may think that you don't have a friend that's in a, in a bad situation. And I hope you don't, but chances are we do, we all do. Um, and people that are in the situation are either afraid or ashamed to talk about it. And that's why I, I want to speak out and I want to try to, even if the person never has to say a word, it'll give them the internal strength that they need to take care of themselves and to get out of the situation they're in. Lisa, on November, uh, on November 17, 2001, you fought, uh, you fought Lisa Halloween and, uh, and obviously almost, almost 16 years later to the day you guys got married. Was that love at first punch or kind of <laughs> how, how, how did that come together? You know, um, the back of my career days, I, I love talking trash. I mean, that was like, the, the, <laughs> I, I absolutely loved it. It was it was part of what got me ready for the fight. And then I tried to to get in my opponent's head. I tried to make them so mad they would make a mistake. And it worked because at the weigh-in, um, Lisa said to me, good luck, Martin. But I think she said it kind of like sarcastically. <laughs> and and I said, good luck getting knocked the F out. And, um, and then during the fight, I think it was the second or third round, I missed her with a left hook. And she's like, oh, they told me you were fast, bitch. And I'm like, oh my goodness, you know. Oh no, it wasn't. It wasn't love at first sight. No, no. But we sparred some later, and um, she helped me get ready for Layla Ali. Um, and then let's see, she came to. I fought Valerie my food in Houston. She. So we were friends afterwards. It took a while. It took a couple of years before she would talk to me. But um, yeah, after about two or three years, we started to spar some, and then she would come to the fights. How long have you guys been married? Um, we're coming up on five years. Wow! Congrats. Yeah, that, that's 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 a great story, you know, from from opponent to uh, you know, marriage. <laughs> uh, right. that, that's pretty rare. But but uh, but Christy, let me take you back to the, to the boxing days. You know, I'm guessing it must have been a lot of pressure. You know, you you were putting women's boxing on the map. Uh, you're the face of women's boxing. There weren't that many at the time. Uh, were there parts where you maybe actually enjoyed it being in, in the spotlight with fighting on Mike Tyson undercard, being oh. promoted by Don King, or was it just a lot of pressure? What's the balance there? Um, that's what you want. If you're a fighter and you want to be a champion, you want to get to that. You want those bright lights. And so I feel like, you know, even though I wasn't headlining shows for Don King, I was promoted by the world's greatest promoter. And I was fighting on the biggest pay-per-view cards under Mike Tyson, who, everybody in the world tuned in to watch. Um, I, I don't feel like any anybody could have had a better career in the 90s, I, I male or female. You know, unless, of course, you're Felix Trinidad or Julio Cesar Chavez, you're headlining your own shows. But, no, I had a great career. I loved it. I had so much fun. And boxing opened up so many doors for me. I mean, I got to travel around the world on somebody else's dime, meet a lot of really cool people. Go, go different places that I wouldn't, my degree is in education. I would have never been able to do the things that I have done um, teaching school. Can, can you give us your best, uh, either Don King or Mike Tyson story from being around them? Oh my goodness. Um, well, let me think. Uh, <laughs> you know what? I, I, this is a, a true honest story about Mike Tyson. I was at a press conference and um my contract with DK was coming up and, and he, it, you know, we're waiting on the press conference to start. Mike sitting behind me and I just like talk, start talking to him. Mike, Mike, I need to get paid more money. What, what do I tell DK? And he's like, you just go in there, Christy, and tell him what you want. And if he doesn't give it to him, you turn around and walk out. I'm like, that works for you, Mike Tyson, but I'm Christy Martin. <laughs> and then, then he's so cool. He was like, do you need some money, Christy? Can I give you some money? And I'm like, no, Mike, I want to make my own. But that tells you what kind of guy he was. You know, 
he gets so much bad rap, so much bad press, but he's a good dude. And, and he is there to help other people. He's bought so many computers, so many different things for kids all around the world. Um, he does some good stuff. Christy, you, you grew up uh, playing. I mean, I, I saw that you played baseball. You got a scholarship to play basketball. What led you to go to into the boxing realm? <laughs> Loco. <laughs> um, you know what? I have no idea. Uh, honest to God, I have no idea. I had, We had this tough man contest that would come around every year to my little town in, in southern West Virginia. And for, for many years, they didn't allow women to do that, to be in the, the tournament. But for some reason, I thought, wow, this would be the coolest thing. So I kept telling the promoter, you need to add women. You need to add women. Finally, one year, they added women. And I was right there to sign up to get started. And and that's how my boxing career began. And never in my wildest dreams did I think about being a professional. And then when I turn, did turn pro, I thought I'll do it one time just to say I did it. Um, you know, it's crazy how far boxing took me. Well, you're not first... you're a promoter, right? Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes, but trust and believe it is so much more fun. And, and oh, yeah, to be in the ring than be on the outside of the ring. It absolutely is it's hard work. Um, it's hard work selling boxing, but it's hard work dealing with all the different personalities, um, attitudes. And, you know, these fighters today, to in my opinion they don't they don't want to train they don't want to stay focused and if you're a professional fighter you box every day you go to the gym you work out if you're a plumber you do plumbing work every day if you're a school teacher you know you teach school but these professional fighters i'm talking about four and six round fighters like they oh no no, i, I had to just had a fight i need to take some time off or i need to go to camp i'm like do you guys even know what camp is <laughs> you know they, they have no clue Christy, come on. It's all about flexing on TikTok. And, oh, my Instagram. God. Absolutely. Isn't <laughs> it? Isn't it? I mean, and, and that's another thing. I'm like, why do you put your stuff up on social media so everybody can watch what you do and then, like, they can get prepared for you? It makes that doesn't make sense. And you know what's funny? I did see the other day, I can't remember what boxer did it. He put in slow motion him knocking out an opponent. I'm like, wait, you can see everything he like everything in super slow motion on how he knocked him out, how he prepared for the because it was the last like five, six seconds of the of the whole how he prepared for the knockout. And you're like, wow, you can literally study just off of that just to see how he prepares and how he loads up and everything. And you're basically giving it away to your opponents for free. Absolutely. I don't understand it. Social media. I mean, it's great for you guys, but it, it absolutely is. It's terrible for boxing. Christy, uh, before I let you go, I guess, you know, like I mentioned, you, you kind of started women's boxing. Uh, I guess for you, when you watch it now, like, I guess, how is it seen how far they've come? Uh, the state of women's boxing right now. I know there's a lot of work to do, but, you know, there's some notable names out there. And then even you look at the other side, the MMA, UFC world, it, they're really taking over over there. The, the women's are fighters. No question about the UFC. I mean, um, starting with Ronda Rousey, which I'm not really a fan of, but starting with Ronda Rousey, uh, in my opinion, she she kept the UFC relevant. I mean, she really and she she started the fire for one female after the other, and and they have just become better, better, better fighters. I think over there um, with the boxing, I was at ringside for Taylor Serrano. Mm. And everybody kept telling me, you know, they've sold out Madison Square Garden. And and I was like, well, I hope they have. But I just couldn't believe it. I could not believe that they had sold out Madison Square Garden. I get there. Madison Square Garden was sold out and rocking. I mean, oh, my goodness. When they came to the ring, it was just electrifying. I mean, the energy that was in the building was unbelievable. And then they put on a fight that lived up to the hype. And that was what I had, I had spoken with uh, Amanda Serrano, but takes with her before. And I, I told her, you know, I don't want to put more pressure on you, but the weight of women's boxing is really on your guys' shoulders. And if they had stunk up the show, it would have been a really hard blow for women's boxing, but they didn't. They, they lit the fire even hotter than it's ever been. So I, I think there are going to be more big women fights made, I hope. 
Folks, that was just a little bit of a teaser. Go buy the book, Fighting for Survival, My Journey Through Boxing Fame, Abuse, Murder, and Resurrection. Boxing legend and Hall of Famer Christy Martin, thank you so much for jumping on the show with us. And uh, and good luck with the promoting and everything and the social media and, and guys <laughs> right. flexing and everything. But we appreciate you jumping on with us. Cool. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. Woo! Boy, what can I tell you? The compas have done it again. Another great interview, this time with Hall of Fame boxer Christy Martin. Learning about combating opponents not only in the ring, but outside of it was incredible to hear. Don't forget to check out her book. Speaking of promoting, if you want the best voice out there reading promos about your businesses, what? A restaurant? What? Bar? What? Or anything that matters? Hit us up at the Gmail. Uncle on the beat. You already know your boy coaches offensive line. He loves to eat. Loves to drink his whiskey. What? Anything. You know you want Dan and Dago to bring that fire like Johnny Storm. So bring the advertisement. That's compass on the beat at gmail.com. Now we move on to another compa who went from writing to podcasting in Kalen Jones. What do you have for us, Kalen? This next guest is a very special compa. We're excited about uh, his new opportunity. This guy has earned everything, and he's one of the best reporters in the game. Kalen Jones, host of History Channel's Sports History This Week. Welcome to the show, and how how does that new job title sound to you? Uh, still getting used to it, but <laughs> definitely happy about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> Kaylin, I, I miss you on the sidelines during training camp, NFL. You know, that's how we met each other, Chargers training camp, and I'm looking over and seeing some of my buddies, but you're not out there. But I'm also happy for you, the the new gig, and, and that, that's a big deal. You know, History Channel, like we all know the channel, and now you're you're the voice of the podcast. Uh, you know, I'm guessing you, you have a deeper voice now. You, you have a, a radio <laughs> voice, podcast voice. Uh, but just tell me real quickly, how did that come about for you to leave the writer side, the NFL side, reporter side? Well, you still were doing a lot of reporting for History Channel, but doing into the, the podcast world, more audio, stuff like that. Yeah, no, it's, it's definitely strange. So it, it was a hard decision. I mean, like as far as deciding, you know, it's a pretty major career shift to go from being a, you know, a digital reporter to a podcast host because that, that's really what and I miss the the reporting aspect you know being able to be around everything um just the way that I'm wired like that I think that's the best way for me to do my job really as a reporter so I definitely miss being out of training camp seeing everybody tweet and you know report from from the football and everything but um yeah no I mean like the transition has been a little bit difficult only because you know, again, like it's different duties. Um, my role with the podcast is not only just to host it, but to also be an editor. And, you know, truth be told, like, you know, ironically enough, like I, I still think my editing skills can be sharpened. It's very strange, like having someone else submit, you know, 15 pages of a story and then have to go through it and then tweak it accordingly. to So that way, you know, fits my voice or, you know, you don't want to overhaul some somebody else's work. Um, but also, you know, I, I want to make sure that it sounds like something I would be okay saying on uh, for the show. But yeah, I mean, like it, it was definitely a difficult decision. But you know, uh, they reached out. Uh, History Channel did, I think, I want to say, like right after the Super Bowl around February, and they were pretty quick as far as like their process because, um, you know, when they first pitched the idea to me, I was like, you know, this sounds like a great fit because. Um, you know, I love doing stories that matter. I love talking about historical stuff, stuff that um, alters culture or, you know, our society. And, you know, I love talking about the intersection between sports and, and culture like that. So, you know, being able to touch on weekly topics, I, I was like, you know, that's really intriguing. But again, you know, giving up that writing, you know, portion, um, I still like plan on doing freelance, like down the road, I think once I get more acquainted and familiar with, you know, doing the podcast and understand like, you know, what I can do, what I can give on a weekly basis. But um, yeah, it's been, it's been fun. It's definitely been fun. I like our little team. I like the collaboration and, you know, the stories we've been able to tell so far have been really fun. So Kaylin, you found that in February. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Fernando, but didn't we hang out with Kaylin exactly in March what I was at the combine? Exactly what I was thinking <laughs> when we were, when we, when he was going through it, he's like, yeah, in February. I'm like, okay, we hung out during the Super Bowl a little bit. 
And then, uh, cause he came over to our table and he hung out for a little bit. And then I'm like, wait, I'm like combine. I'm like, we hung out almost the whole week. I'm like, wow. Yeah, like, together, Kaylin. We didn't crazy. know anything about it. <laughs> well, so I didn't know anything about it. You know, that's the thing. Like it, it, it was a quick, pro- I, I might've gotten the dates wrong. It might've been like around March. Ah, now, now he's backtracking like Jalen. <laughs> yeah, see now I'm backtracking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Jamar Chase, he's like, ah, go backtracking. So, <laughs> no, but we're, we're we're honestly so happy for you, and and just uh, tell us a little bit of, uh, more about like kind of how how it comes together. Like, how do you get the soup going? How do you how do you prepare your ingredients? How do you do everything? How what's the pro- what's your process? Yeah, so it, it's pretty different. Um, I guess like not too different from telling like a long feature story. So, um, we have pitch meetings. Uh, we'll figure out like what stories we want to do uh, for our first season total. We have 46 episodes, uh, not all of them lined up, but you know, we have a, free, a game plan of doing 46 episodes and the way that we've split it up so far, I think they have the four, first four or five episodes already predetermined the subjects. And so um, once we figure out, you know, what stories we want to do, I think like five or six in a row, uh, we, you know, the producers who, um, you know, end up, collaborating with me in terms of figuring out who we want to talk to, um, what angle we want to take. Um, you know, we've had, I think like, it's weird because that's the thing, like the contact between the subject for me is I'm I'm basically out of the loop. Like I I can help here and there as far as, you know, connecting people when I have a a good connection there, but you know, it's, it's weird because the producers or our associate producers will go out and handle the, the interviews, setting them up. And then, you know, we'll conduct them in the middle of the week. And so for me, it's it, it's a juggling act because I'm juggling maybe two or three stories a week. And it's a little bit different because, one, it's history. So that way it's different from, you know, covering an event that's in live time because, you know, you can maybe learn some stuff on the fly. You can build a story, you know, in a narrative that hasn't been, you know, or other people are developing. Like, it's really fresh. Other stuff, it's historical. So I'm trying to do as much research and digging as possible and so it does appeal to me in that sense but i think the first few weeks i was overwhelming myself because you know for example i'm looking at my board right now like we had our episode on the dream team that i was recording one week and you know that would be simultaneous to doing research on lou gehrig which you know i know of lou gehrig but i didn't know anything about lou gehrig until i did my you know intensive research and trying to do due diligence for you know when we have guests on like the authors who, you know, do painstaking work of writing their, their books and, you know, doing documentaries and stuff like that. You know, I want to sound like I'm informed, you know, granted, you know, at the same time, it's fun because I'm learning at the same time, but, you know, it's a, it's a little bit different because I'm trying to juggle 20 million, uh, you know, factoids and events and, and points while also, you know, making sure, you know, the podcasting voice is correct. Like, um, you know, like I'm just talking to my normal voice right now, but, you know, I try to make sure I'm enunciating, make sure I'm being um, engaging. And um, it's it's definitely been a little bit of a challenge or not even a challenge. I would say just, you know, getting accustomed to the role on a full time basis. But um, I'm fortunate that we have two producers who handle a lot of the storytelling aspects. And then I go through and make sure, you know, edit everything. I have to make sure that, you know, everything is fact checked correctly as well. So it's definitely a painstaking process, but it's really rewarding, you know, by the end, two, three weeks, you know, now we've gotten the routine where we're weeks out in advance where we're submitting, you know, our episodes to get through and, uh, you know, our sound designers go through it and pick through, you know, little stuff to throw into the episode, make sure, you know, if we have to redo something or pick up something, we have time uh, to where we're not feeling rushed. Um, But yeah, like it's definitely been a challenge. I don't know if I'm, laying it out particularly clearly but no yeah, no, no no you are yeah. you are i got i got one for you i got Go one for, for you um uh, from sixth round to goat the tom brady story Ooh, <laughs> look at that in a couple of years you're gonna have to do it uh, you can you can already oh, get yeah. a head start on it he, he's I mean, already doing that for now he had like an eight-part series on his own career <laughs> and, you're not wrong you're that, not wrong you know what and michael jordan and then i think kobe's comes out uh next year uh right. if I, or maybe the this year and next year. So, hey, there we're going to get a lot of those. But, hey, who knows? Maybe say, from six-rounder to GOAT. Like, that's a good title. I'm going to trademark that. You're going to get people like that now, Kaylin. Like, hey, I have an idea for history. And, like, no, we don't want it, okay? Like, leave me alone. Uh, but that's kind of my next question. So, uh, Kaylin, so good far, ideas. 
yeah, whatever for now though. Save your ideas <laughs> for yourself. But uh, I forget how many episodes has it been so far, and you know, kind of you know, break down or discuss a little bit the ones you liked the most so far. Which one have been your favorite? Because these are some historic moments in sports history. Uh, like you already mentioned, the Dream Team, Lou Garrett, you know, Hall of Famer with the with the Yankees. Uh, so you're touching some some really notable things in sports history. But so far, what which ones do you like the most, and how many episodes has it been so far? Um, I'm trying to think of how many episodes it's been. Uh, I got with my board one, two, three, four, five. This was a whole six. draft board. <laughs> we've done six. I mean, I just it's just a column on my whiteboard. We got, when he, come, when he comes back, he's gonna understand. He's gonna understand Tom Telesco and and all these GMs. He's gonna be like, man, when I got they're gonna he's gonna sit around with them and be like, look, when I look at my draft, my board, I gotta look at my board to to that determines everything I'm gonna do. So Kalen's on it right now. I'm trying to man shoot. You know, we're we're si- we have six episodes published. We've recorded, I think, eight now going on nine oh, wow. tomorrow. So, you know, it, and you know, we'll go through and tweak everything. So that's the thing. Like, I'm happy because we we've got, you know, some time between now and when the episodes are produced. We're not up against the wire, uh, you know, or you know, last minute having to tweak everything. My favorite moment so far, man. Um, Billie Jean King was the first episode, and. Oh. You know, being able to interview and that's the thing, like, you know, I'm, I'm 26. So and you guys are young, too. So it's like we hear about historical people. Right. You know, you think about like textbooks and stuff like that. You see people's names are in there for a reason. But, you know, going through and getting a full explanation and researching on my own and seeing how much you know BS she had to put up with, you know, in the 70s, you know, not just her women in general, but, you know, being able to talk to a revolutionary figure, you know, I, I you know, in that realm of Muhammad Ali, Colin Kaepernick, like for me, maybe she, you know, and I wouldn't ever say that maybe she's, you know, beyond them, but to be in that realm, to speak with somebody who has that kind of cachet in American history and world history, sports history, you know, it was really rewarding. And she's a fantastic human being. And like, I, I stumped her. I asked her a question. I think it's like, I love talking about introspective stuff. Um, so I, I remember asking like how she, you know, put up with, everything that she was going through while also, you know, trying to, you know, play tennis, you know, be an athlete, do your job. In addition to trying to, you know, uh, headline a movement, a revolutionary cultural societal movement. And I stumped her and that, you know, that that's probably my career highlight is her saying, you know, that's a great question. You know, Billie Jean King is, you know, she's been doing these interviews and I've watched 20 million, I watched 20 million of them. You know, she repeat had a lot of stuff rehearsed, which, you know, that's what you should, you know, like if, if you're going to be on 20 million different TV shows and be interviewed 20 million times about stuff you did 50, 60 years ago now. But to stump her and have her say, like, that was a great question like that. Like, and I can, go, I can retire the, now. She still <laughs> at the forefront of everything. Like, she still comes out. She'll tweet stuff out. She'll be at events. Exactly. And that, it's amazing to still see her do so much at her age. Exactly, man. Like, it's weird because, like, even so, even with the Dream Team episode, like, I didn't get to speak to Michael Jordan, but just like learning about how Michael Jordan was wired, like that story about how, you know, before the gold medal game, he was out, you know, doing whatever. And then he played golf the morning of, was out at, you know, the stadium just walking around, then shows up to the game, you know, maybe an hour before. And everyone, um, in some of the documentaries I watched, you know, they talk about his, you know, the motor that he has. And I saw, I see it in Billie Jean King. Michael Jordan, um, I think even we're, we're going to do an episode on Deion Sanders. Don't know if we'll get to talk to him, but I mean, that's another dude. You know, he played two different sports, was flying between um, what New York and or Seattle or wherever in Atlanta, you know, like being able to pull that off. You have to be wired a little bit differently. And, you know, I already had a tremendous amount of respect for athletes and the mental load that they have to take on in addition to the physical stuff uh, that we admire them for and, and critique them for. Uh, but, you know, hearing about the, the type of wiring that you have to be to be special is it, it's been really fun, you know, from, from my own perspective and it's fulfilling. It's pretty cool that you're still getting a bunch of like new information on topics that have been you know covered for so many years, you know, decades. And we, we know everything about these special moments in history. But here we are with your podcast and you're bringing out new nuggets, you know, on every single week. Uh, is, is that pretty tough or do you feel like, hey, we have a nice strategy here that we get people going and they're giving us new information? Uh, it's pretty tough because, again, you know, a lot of stuff is, you know, it's already happened. And a lot of the stuff that we're covering has already been, you know, covered four, five, ten times over. And so it is a little bit difficult to unearth a lot of new stuff. I think that's why, like, in, in regards to the interviews themselves, 
And, you know, one of the things I, you know, I'm hoping for as we um, I have to be patient with is, you know, wanting to get more athletes on people who were actually a part of a lot of the movements. You know, some of the moments have been, you know, they're, you know they've passed away. Like there's some events where, you know, they, it's like in the 1920s or 1930s and stuff like that. We're not going to be able to get that. But, you know, um, being able to talk to people again, like Billie Jean King is a good example. We're doing some episode on um, or we had an episode on 1980. Puerto Rican Olympic boxing team, which I never knew about. You know, they decided to boycott uh, the Olympics in protest of what the United States was doing. Like, that's ballsy as mm. hell. Like, you know, like, it, it takes a lot of onus, you know? Like, it, it's crazy. So, um, just unearthing stories like that and, mm. you know, being able to learn stuff on a weekly basis is really rewarding, again, especially when it ties into society, because that that's a great example of one where you know, American politics are not particularly great and oppressive at times, but, you know, the people that are oppressed, we don't hear about because, you know, <laughs> that's kind of intentional. So it's nice to be able to give some type of voice. And because, you know, even though stuff has been covered 10 times over, maybe there's a little small following that I have, like, you know, maybe someone is, is learning about it for the first time. I know a lot of the stuff I'm learning about it for the first time. So, yeah, no. And I mean, obviously you're surprised by it and you're like, oh, wow, like it's, must be an impact. So I'm sure your listeners, the same thing is happening for them. But uh, Kalen, jumping a little bit over to, to two teams that are two, two teams that you were familiar with, Rams, Chargers, uh, jumping over to the NFL a little bit. What do you kind of make of uh, both of the teams in L.A.? And, and kind of I know, you, I mean, you're looking now from afar. I mean, neither you or I is in there yeah. anymore. But uh, kind of <laughs> what, what, what do you think about the, the moves that both teams made during the offseason? I like them both. Uh, I mean, what the Rams, you know, were able to do the pull off winning that Super Bowl, you know, it speaks for itself. They ended up winning the Lombardi trophy. And so um, I, I think like they were smart in regards to going out and getting Allen Robinson. I, I think giving Matthew Stafford a clear cut number one dude, I, you know, or I guess like a more of a boundary. Dude. I won't say clear cut number one dude because Cooper Cup exists. Um, yeah. But <laughs> but having that classic X receiver, I think, is something that that offense was really missing having that big target. And I think it was Jordan and whoever, I think y'all were, were tweeting about how, you know, he's being used as a red zone threat and the way that Matthew Stafford has been able to target him. You know, they, they were able to lean on Odell Beckham in the moments that they were able to have him. But having that, you know, again, I think a classic pure X receiver who realistically could be on the precipice of, you know, going into his prime, someone as motivated as Allen Robinson. And I was there for like his opening presser over Zoom. And I think that was the one thing that stood out to me was how motivated he is to seize an opportunity like this playing with the Rams. So I think he's going to be a tremendous uh, addition for their offense. And then even with the, the Chargers, I think what's really fascinating about both L.A. teams is that, you know, the template for what they want to do, like their, their ideals, there's a different word I can't think of, but, you know, what they want to do is very clear, like their blueprints for success. It's very clear and they're following it to a T. And, you know, before I got out of there, like, I, you know, covering Brandon Staley was so fascinating because, again, like everyone talks about the analytics and the emotional aspect, like he's able to blend the two. And I think people lean too far one way or the other in critiquing him. But you know, I think last year was a really good template for what holes they needed to fill. Going out and getting J.C. Jackson and Khalil Mack, uh, Sebastian Joseph Day, you know, if that defense is even average or even slightly below average and not, you know, horrible when it comes to defending the run or, you know, average in terms of defending the pass, you know, having elite playmakers like they've added over this offseason, I, I, I believe all the hype. Because, again, like when you look at what the offense is doing, I think the biggest question mark is whether, you know, Lombardi ends up opening up things for Justin Herbert and maybe not, you know, you know, catering the offense or building it, constructing it as if, you know, Drew Brees at 38, 37 years old is running things. Like if they end up opening that thing offensively and the defense plays at an average level, and if you get like even decent running back production from Isaiah Spiller to complement what they have in Austin Eckler, like that could end up being the best team in the NFL if everything goes according to plan. No right tackle is a big issue for them. But, you know, I'm really curious to see how the Chargers do because – this last season was a hype season, but this year it seems like everything should be coming together. You got him going, Fernando. He misses the NFL life, you know. He, he he's on it. All the <laughs> that's information. Why I wanted, yeah, I that's why it. I wanted to ask him about it. You're doing well though, Kaylin. Big things at History Channel, and it's good to see you and, and let us know about the podcast. But I'm glad you're also, you know, you're you're you're, you're keeping tabs on the NFL. Hopefully, we see you out there soon. 
<laughs> Hopefully soon, man. We'll see. You we'll know what's see. funny, Caitlin? Real quick before we let you go with the whole uh, Brandon Staley thing. So, Mad Dog Russo the other day is like, well, Brandon Staley was going for it on fourth down so many times, and they were all reckless. And I'm like, dude, do you even like watch? Like he was like recklessly going for it on fourth down, and and it just uh, <laughs> if you're not if you're not there, I guess you don't. You kind of just look at the box score and you're like, oh, they went for it five times on fourth down. Ooh, but it's like it's like if you're not there, I guess people don't understand it. But it's just funny to see what you say that the narrative sometimes around Brandon Saley is like people were really going at him and picking on him, and you're like, why? Like the dude didn't like there wasn't there was probably like two reckless times. Other than that, everything else kind of helped them uh, win games in a sense. Oh yeah, no, it, it's fascinating to me because, and this is I'm trying not to go on a tangent, but I'm going to do it. Um, I don't know if you guys saw like that that woman, the doctor who tweeted out. Like they, they tracked down where the dog on co- like COVID started, like the epicenter of that shit. So, yeah, you're good. You're good. You're good. Don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> like <laughs> they tracked down the epicenter, like the very the market in the world. You know that blows my mind. Science is incredible. Like the numbers and stuff. And to me, maybe I'm again tangent here, but like to me, I see now like that helped for whatever reason that helped me understand why analytic dudes are so, you know, staunch in believing that yes, the numbers can tell you how football can be played. Like, it can be played on the spreadsheet. It probably can. And I think, you know, what Staley does so well is, yes, he factors that in, but he also very much is about the human element, too. And, I mean, you guys know this. Like, he's very much about bringing in the right people, you know, being a part of a team and emotions and human error and what you can't account for and all that. I think he factors all that in. And I think that's what makes him such a good coach. And it's really funny because, I think he's really much in the middle of every, like if we were going to have like a political sphere of thought for football, like analytics versus rah-rah dude football, he'd be right in the middle. But it's so funny how everyone wants to pick him extreme one way or the other. He's dead center in the middle. And I think that's why I respect, same with Sean McVay. Like I think they they just have a very good approach for team construction and, building you know talented rosters so speaking of building kaylin jones is building a great podcast over on the history channel sports uh history this week it's awesome go check it out you're gonna learn a lot and like he said like when he said the 1980 puerto rican boxing team i'm like who so now i'm gonna have to go check that out i'm i'm definitely excited for checking it out kaylin thank you so much you're a compa thank you so much for for jumping on with us and and we're excited to see all the stuff that you have planned with the history channel thanks so much course y'all thanks for taking the time what a transition from writing your articles out to now articulating them in a podcast different worlds but so similar kind of like that marvel multiverse maybe thank you kaylin for letting us follow your great work speaking of following if you haven't gone yet to follow us on all social media platforms for the Twitter, it's at Compass OTB. The OTB is capital. From the Tic Tacs, TikTok, whatever you call it, and Instagram, we are just at Compass on the Beat. So make sure you give us a follow, subscribe to our YouTube. It is our goal to get a thousand subscribers before the NFL season. And who knows? Maybe there'll be a big surprise for the thousand subscriber. You never know. You never know what the compas are cooking up here, right there, right in our bowl. Master chefs, like always, dude. Now the compas bring on one of human tools. Co-worker and Jeff Flesher to speak about his book on Shohei Otani called Showtime. So it's showtime for the compas. Gilbert, we're fascinated by Shohei Otani on this program. Compas on the beat, but I think the whole world feels the same way about Otani. We all want to know more about the two-way superstar from Japan and Jeff uh, Fletcher, Angels beat reporter for the OC Register, knew we wanted more Otani and delivered with a book called Showtime, the inside story of Shohei Otani and the greatest baseball season ever played. Jeff, welcome to the show. And what's the feedback been for the Otani book? And how have you, uh, how have these last few days gone for you since you've released the book? Well, it's been a little crazy. Uh, I've been doing a lot of uh, interviews, spreading the word about the book. Uh, people seem to be pretty happy with it. People like it, which is great. Uh, it's still going to probably take a little while for it to really get in the hands of all the general public because of the, the whims of Amazon. But uh, hopefully people get it soon and uh, I start getting some five-star ratings and uh, people like it. 
Jeff, uh, I just mentioned that I got the book on Amazon. And when I got there, you know, it already said a bestseller and it only said like, you know, a few copies available. So these things are moving fast. I'm sure you're happy to hear that. Uh, so I encourage everybody to get this book. Uh, but Jeff, you know, let me ask you, you know, what made you want to write this book on, on Otani? Uh, and obviously, you know, you know a lot about the team and the player because you're the Angels beat reporter, reporter for the OC Register. But uh, how much extra work went into this after you decided to do the book? Well, first of all, I mean, what he did was so incredible. And in, you know, 25 years I've been covering baseball, I've never seen anything like this. Nobody who's alive has seen anything like this. It's just really phenomenal to be able to be one of the best hitters in the majors and one of the best pitchers in the majors. It's just unprecedented. And so since I had been covering him for his entire career, somebody had to write a book on it. And I was figured that it might as well be me because anybody else would not have the same insight that I've had. So I should do it before somebody else does. And uh, it's just been uh, it's been great to see, uh, you know, people get excited about it. Yeah. And good timing, Jeff, uh, during the, the, the All-Star game in Los Angeles. So that worked out for you. And he's having another great season, too. But let me ask you about the, the title. I know when you got to sell a book, you need a strong, catchy title and uh, best or I guess greatest season ever played in baseball history. You know, it goes way back. Uh, there you go. Put the book um, plug it and. Tell me about the title, though. You know, I, I'm sure I'm not disputing it, but some people are probably going to dispute and saying, what do you mean the greatest baseball season ever? This, this game goes back to Babe Ruth. I guess for you, why did you decide to call it that? And why is it the greatest season ever for a baseball player? Well, I mean, anybody who is an elite pitcher and an elite hitter, that never happens. So right off the bat, you're knocking out almost every other baseball season that anybody's ever had. You know, there have been great offensive seasons, great pitching seasons, but they're still just one thing. So if you want to go two-way seasons, you really just have Otani and Babe Ruth. And I think that Babe Ruth really only did it twice, 1918 and 1919. And both of those seasons, he only pitched about half the time. He really just wanted to hit. And it was kind of a fight with him and the Red Sox because they wanted him to keep pitching and he wanted to keep hitting. And then the next year he went to the Yankees and there was no more pitching. So uh, Otani really is totally committed to doing both. He did both from wire to wire uh, last season. He's done both all the way through this season. Um, and, you know, the, the competition now is obviously much tougher than it was when Babe Ruth was playing. There's, you know, baseball's integrated and there's more technology that they use to the players use to analyze each other to figure out, you know, how to beat each other. And, uh, you know, there's more travel. It's just they play more games. It's just much more difficult, I think, to to succeed in Major League Baseball now as it was 100 years ago. Jeff, your book gets into Otani's injury-riddled seasons of 2019-2020. How tough were those seasons for Otani, and how uh, how much did he have to change his mentality, his, change his mentality and physically to have a breakout season in 2021? Yeah, those were obviously very tough for him because you know I think a lot of people kind of gave up on him too because we'd seen him do it in 2018, but then he got hurt and he kept getting hurt. He had a few different injuries. He had surgery twice. And I think that a lot of baseball just sort of figured it was never going to happen. And I think Otani knew that. He had that kind of weight on him. And he, you know, he said, going into 2021, I know I disappointed a lot of people because I've been hurt and haven't been able to see what I wanted, what I could do. So he knew that it was all riding on basically last season. And uh, that certainly had to uh, affect all of his workouts as, as he went through the winter leading up to last season. And he just, uh, he delivered. Well, what's been the most unique thing about Otani in, in the years that you've covered him? And, or is there something that maybe while you're writing the book, something jumped out at you about him? Well, obviously, the most unique thing is that he's a two-way player. So <laughs> if we put that aside, uh, I think one of the interesting things about him that, that people really uh, might not realize if they don't watch him a lot is he really has a lot of fun on the field. You know, he, you can kind of feel like he's a machine just because of what he does, you know, his performance. But he's out there kind of goofing off, you know, at times with the other players. He jokes around. There was a scene earlier this year where he was in a slump, and so he started doing CPR on his bat in the dugout. And, uh, you know, everybody got a laugh out of that. And he does imitations of his teammates, and he's, uh, he's kind of a jokester around the team. So he's really a pretty fun-loving, easygoing guy. Jeff, this uh, next question might be more for the beat reporter side for you or maybe the, the extra chapter on the, on the Otani book, but – you know, being the All-Star game and Otani being the, one of the biggest stars in baseball, probably the biggest one, uh, he got a lot of questions this past past week at Dodger Stadium about his future and what that means for the Angels and uh, being a free agent after the 2023 season. 
Uh, I guess, where you, what do you think we're heading for that situation where Otani and the Angels uh, come in with the free agency so fast? That's a great question. Uh, there's certainly a lot of concern among Angels fans that he's going to be gone at the end of 23. Uh, I think this winter, the Angels are going to really try very hard to sign him to a long-term contract. They're going to need a lot of money to do that, and they're also going to need to convince him that they're going to win in the long run, which obviously they've not done so far. Both of those things are going to be kind of difficult. I think the uh, the easier part is just going to be coming up with the money. The Angels have lots of money, plus Otani makes them lots of money, so that helps too. But the, the Angels are not in, a, in an easy situation as far as winning. They have a, a pretty bad farm system, and you can't just write a check or click flick a switch to make that better. So that's going to take a little time. They're going to need to convince Otani that they're on the right track and that they can get this turned around as soon as possible. But, you know, I don't think anybody's going to going to expect that they're going to turn around and be a 100-win team next year and, and win the World Series. But, uh, you know, if they if they can make some progress towards that goal, and certainly he would help, then that would certainly help uh, lock him down. Okay. And, Jeff, for the ne- this next question could be a two-parter, and I'm going to ask you to guess, but any idea what that contract number could be for Otani? And then the second part, you kind of already answered it, but – can this team be? Can can they win fast? Can they win next year? I know it just didn't. You know, I was covering a few games. Uh, you know, playing backup for you for the exhibition series against the Dodgers, and Joe Madden was saying, you know, this team is stacked with Aaron Rendon, Mike Trout, Otani. Obviously, Joe Madden is not back with the not with the team anymore. Uh, but can they win quickly next year? And also in the contract, can you give me kind of a guess on what that could be for the numbers? Well, they certainly looked uh, pretty good back at the beginning of the season. You know, they started off twenty-seven and seventeen, and everybody thought, you know, this is it. But I think maybe that was a little bit of a mirage. So uh, certainly they they can be good. Uh, and, you know, I think we saw with the San Francisco Giants last year that it's possible to just kind of really hit on all of your offseason acquisitions and just have the perfect season and everything goes right. And you can do that in the short term. That's what the Giants did. So any given year, the Angels have a chance to do that. As for the uh, contract, it's really hard to say because there's no comps for a player like this. You know, you can just say, well, he's worth X as a pitcher and X as a hitter and add them together and and see what that comes out to. And that is going to be a gigantic number. The the problem with that also is there's no track record for how long to be a two-way player. So you can't just say, you know, he's this good and we're going to give him that amount of money times 10 years because you don't know if he could be a two-way player for 10 more years. You don't know if he can do it for two more years. So it's really uh, going to be fascinating to see uh, what kind of number the Angels or any other team uh, comes up with when that time comes. Jeff, do you feel like this offseason, I mean, with Juan Soto now on the trade market and then Aaron Judge not knowing what's going to happen, do you think these three players could basically play chicken with each other and kind of try and see, well, if Aaron Judge got 500, maybe Otani's like, hey, I think I deserve 550 or or with Juan Soto's gone. Do you think they could play chicken with, with each other uh, this offseason? Uh, certainly they're all going to make lots of money. I would like to have uh, any one of their contracts for <laughs> a percentage of maybe, you know, the, the, the tax withholding part, you know, would be great, but, uh, Hey, you should get some marketing. You should get some marketing money off of Otani. You, you just promoted them with that book. There should be a little <laughs> chunk of change coming your way. Well, I'm, the book is uh, for sale in Japan too. So oh, wow. that, that's nice. So. That's pretty cool. To answer so, your question, they're all going to make lots of money, and I don't know. Uh, obviously, Judge is the first guy who's going to be a free agent, so he's probably going to go first. And, uh, you know, Soto still has a couple years left, so he might kind of play it out a little longer. And uh, Otani, I think that, you know, I can see the Angels really, uh, if they're going to resign him, it happening sometime before the start of next season. Why do you feel like it hasn't worked with the Angels? I mean, going back to you being the beat writer, but you've been around the team for years, and it's like you, they have Mike Trout. Now you have Shohei. You've spent some money on on players. Why, why do you think it just hasn't come together for them? Well, the problem is to have a consistently good baseball team, you need to have a really good farm system. And that is where you generate most of your players come from. And most of those guys that don't make very much money, they're all still getting better. And if you don't have that core – you're just not going to win in the long term. No team becomes a good team based on guys they acquire from other teams. They become a, a great team when you're already a good team and you add a few pieces to that. So you just can't like build your whole team based on guys you get from elsewhere. It just doesn't work. Maybe you get lucky and it works one year, but it's not going to work in the long term. 
So Jeff, what's what book is next for you? Uh, second book on Shohei, or or what, what? What do you got? What do you got cooking? Are you just gonna take it easy right now? Uh, I'm definitely gonna take it easy right now. I got no other books cooking. So so in Japan right now, the famous people are Shohei Otani. Then it's you because you wrote this book, right? <laughs> uh, I've I've been uh, doing a lot of interviews in Japan, and one of the other uh, reporters said, "I see you on TV in Japan all the time." <laughs> <laughs> Here's the Japanese version, by the way. Wow, oh, that's awesome. So that's pretty wow. cool. Jeff, have you been to Japan or planning to go anytime soon? I have not, but I would love to go. And hopefully this book is the uh, the ticket for me to get there. Hopefully the, the publisher over in Japan will fly me over there to do some signings and events. And I think that would be uh, really fun. What's kind of like, uh, I was going to say real quick, what's, what's your, uh, your number for how many interviews you did and how many were from Japan too? Oh, geez. <laughs> uh, I mean, over, over Otani's four years, it's in the hundreds. But just since uh, this book came out, it's easily 40 in Japan. Wow. And another, you know, 30 in the U.S. Well, that is awesome. Showtime, uh, the story on Shohei Otani. That's an awesome book. Go get it, guys. I'm now I'm going to go purchase it as well. Gilbert told me about it. Now, uh, Jeff, listening to you, look, at that's an awesome picture, by the way. That's a really cool. Uh, that's a really cool picture. Showtime. I mean, that's what LA is all about. They're all about Showtime. Now it's Showtime. So there you go. Awesome book. Thank you so much, Jeff, for for jumping on with us, and and we hope that that punches your ticket to Japan, so you can go out there and and do your own tour out in Japan. That would be great. Thanks for having <laughs> me, guys. Thank you.